Hey Randy, would you like to eat all the cakes and do loads of exercise to stay trim? Or just eat all the cakes and maybe suffer the consequences? Ooh, that's a hard one. Um, that kind of decision sucks. Why can't I just eat zero calorie cakes and eat the whole lot? Well, I guess you could, but they will taste pretty horrible. Hmm. I think I might need some help to make this decision. Also, are these devil cakes? Because, you know, that makes all the difference. Ha. Well, by now you know that there's a point to our introductory waffles. Uh, and not the baking kind of waffles, but the talking <laughs> kind. Oh, God. <laughs> We're talking today about trade-offs and the devilish framework to deal with them in your product role. Lucy Spence is product director at Appvia. And she has an imaginative approach to thinking about this all-important aspect of product management. Let's hear more from her. The Product Experience is brought to you by Mind the Product. Every week on the podcast, we talk to the best product people from around the globe. Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and discover more. Browse for free or become a Mind the Product member to unlock premium content discounts to our conferences around the world, and training opportunities. Mind the Product also offers free product tank meetups in more than 200 cities. There's probably one near you. Lucy, thank you so much for coming and joining us on the podcast today. For anyone who doesn't already know who you are, who are you? What are you up to? How did you get into product? And what are you doing these days? Oh, Thank you very much for having me here. I mean, normally I'm listening to the podcast, so it's like quite interesting to be on this end of it. Um, oh, so my, my product story is probably kind of quite similar in many ways to other people, but actually had a, I, I started off in industrial design at university, so I had a little bit of product design background. And I, many, many, many years ago, went into furniture design. And quickly realized that furniture design was not really for me. And so I joined a sort of graduate program for an IT consultancy. And because I had a design background, they went, uh, we need a website. Can you build us a website? And so the next four weeks of my life were kind of learning what websites were. And this was back in, you know, the late 90s when it was very much the wild, wild west of web. And so I guess I, that's where I got my taste for all things digital. And then I spent the next, I guess, 10 years or so bouncing around doing various different sort of roles from kind of content management, design, a little bit of coding, basically just trying to figure out how to do this whole thing at the time when no one really knew what was going to work and what wasn't going to work. And I sort of, I ended up working for a company called at the at the time called Love Film in the UK. Not sure how many people remember it now. But I was a UX manager there and I kind of kept getting drawn towards the data and th trying to figure out what we should do. And if I'm honest, I was a bit crap as a designer. Um, and so my boss sort of took me aside at one stage and went, I think I think you're going to be more successful as a product manager than a UX designer. At which point I went, cool, what's that? Sounds sounds funky. It's got manager in the title. That's you know interesting. What's product? And yeah, and and so I, that's that's where my sort of kind of product management career started, I guess. And shortly after that, we actually got acquired by Amazon. 
And so Amazon had a much more established um, product management practice. And that was really where I learned what a product manager was and what a product manager shouldn't be. Um, And then, so I, I stayed at Amazon for a while and then moved on to kind of I, I guess I probably should say I was working in the video team there, so um, Amazon Video, not the not the retail part. Um, I've done a number of other things kind of since then in various either leadership positions or individual contributor positions. And, yeah, that's kind of, I guess, now, now I just look and go, oh, wow, I've really started to crack up the years in, in product management. <laughs> By now I kind of probably should have a vague idea what I'm doing. <laughs> or at least I can tell people how not to do it. Yeah, having seen you do a number of talks and having known you for years, I think I can safely say you have a vague idea of what you're doing. But it's a bit woolly, though. Oh, yeah, join the club. <laughs> okay, so before we jump into the details of why we wanted to talk to you today, it was, it's based on a talk you did recently at UX Brighton, which was a lot of fun. And... You took Martin Erickson's Venn diagram and you kind of reimagined it into a pentagram. So, Lucy, you've been doing this a while now. Why are product people like demons? Um, well, I, I'm not. I wasn't quite saying product people are like demons. I, I probably need to probably need to apologise profusely to Martin for the, you know abusing his Venn diagram in such a way. It was a bit of a MacGuffin to just make a bit of a joke. For people who, I guess, haven't seen me do a presentation, which will be the vast majority of people um, by quite a long way, um, I I tend to take analogies, I guess, and stretch them beyond what they should be. And the the topic was trade-offs, and so it sort of starts with a lot of the devil is in the detail and it's making deals with the devil, and so... There was an opportunity to do a pentagram and have the pentagram of product <laughs> management, and so it was trying to illustrate the kind of the, the trade offs that you have to make. And and when you get into that space, that's typically when you start going, oh, maybe we need a product manager. Okay, so so the real theme of all this, the theme of the talk, and the theme of what we're talking about tonight, uh, now that we're five minutes into the podcast, is <laughs> yeah. to talk about trade offs and making them in an effective way. So as product people, why do we have to make trade-offs so often? I think, you know, every decision you make is generally a trade-off, whether it's in product management or not. You know, there's always something else you could be doing. There's always a different kind of path or a different balance that you can find. Um, The reasons I think in product, while it's hard, is because all the easy stuff's been done. Like, you know, if it were easy, someone else would have got there first. Now we're in the zone of hard. You know, it's like we have extraordinary technology uh, available to us and we have amazing products that are out there. To go and just create something successful is not a simple thing. It means that you've got to think hard about what it is and you've got to balance those the complexity of all those different dimensions so that you're, you know, picking a very fine path towards where you're going um, and and a very intentional one. And so it's really kind of getting at that of like, you know, you need to you need to be thinking very carefully about the decisions you make and, and talking about the things that you're not going to have, because there's always that hard thing 
with decisions. You always sort of focus on what you're getting for it. You don't tend to like to, we don't like to talk about the things that we're giving up by doing that. And when you talk about trade-offs, I mean, the classic one that comes to mind is the whole, uh, the triangle with time and quality and scope. And I think sometimes you see cost in there as well. And for those of you that don't know about this triangle, I'm sure you'd be able to Google it. I think it's called the PM triangle or something. But in that case, project management. Uh, And, you know, if you want it fast, then it's not going to be cheap or good. And if you want it really good, then it's not going to be fast or or cheap, that kind of thing. Do do you find that trade-offs tend to fall into those categories in all cases? Or are there other kinds of trade-offs that we're talking about for a product manager? I, I think there are for product managers, there are lots. Those are kind of the classic trade-offs. They're the thing. They're the sort of bread and butter trade-offs. You're always going to be pushing on sort of you know scope, quality, and and speed, and want more of all of those. And they do tend to have a direct pull on each other. So that's kind of the you know the like the simple stuff. But there are there are tons of other trade-offs in terms of experience and things like that. Uh, you know, one of the things that you can think about just in, um, I guess, revenue models is acquisition versus retention. Typically, if you optimize for acquiring every customer that you probably can, you're going to have a higher churn rate than if you focus on higher quality, but fewer customers. Um, And so, you know, there, there are always dimensions, you know, within anything, there's like, we can think about our mental health, we can think about how we manage ourselves in terms of the cognitive load, the focus that we put on to any particular initiative we're working on versus kind of, <laughs> you know, keeping the balls in the air and on as many different things as possible. You know, there, there are just those kind of, you know, those trade offs that we're kind of going, okay, if I want to focus on this thing, which I think is really high leverage, <laughs> there are some balls that are going to drop, but I think that's worth it. So it's sort of, you know, it, it, it's everywhere. The quality scope and, and time is a really good illustration, though, of how you balance these things and how you can think about them and how you can try and get the most out of all of them. Okay. Is it okay that I give away the the spoiler of your talk? Can I? Oh, indeed. I mean, I I know okay. what it is already, so I don't mind. It's the audience <laughs> that's gonna okay. gonna bite back at you. <laughs> so it's still worth watching Lucy's Lucy's talk, and the, the link is in the show notes. And we're gonna, but we're gonna give away the big secret, the big reveal at the end, is that everything she talks about is in a, the model that she uses is an acronym for the word devilish. And so we're going to start going through some of those terms and talk about uh, the lessons learned from them. But we've got a limited time, folks. We're not going to spoil. We're not going to get to all of them. But let's start at the top. Let's start with the disambiguate. So it's a big word to mean be specific, right? What what do you mean by this? What how does that help with trade offs? So I think I mean one of one of the things that you often hear people say is product management is about managing ambiguity. Um, ambiguity being kind of where where we're not quite sure about things. It might be sort of like it, it's quite close in proximity to uncertainty, but it's more like a lack of clarity about what it is. And so there's there's a whole kind of thing about how you operate in a highly ambiguous 
environment of trying to kind of peel back the layers and help people go through. I always kind of, you know, well, not always, but have recently started saying that product management is kind of like, you know, peeling the layers of an onion until you cry because you always end up crying at some point in time. Um, <laughs> you can cry from joy. I mean, that's not oh, really that's what right. I meant. But just oh yes, <laughs> that's what onions always do. Yes. It's the smell, the beauty of the cooking. For more cooking tips, we'll... no. Um, so it, it it it's kind of going through that thing of you go okay. So we think we want to do this, you know, like how might we? How might we exercise? Is there a good way of thinking about managing? ambiguity and and reducing that ambiguity what we're sort of doing is identifying a problem and asking the question how might we solve this and so it's sort of we bring about ideas and through filtering those ideas we're kind of narrowing down and we're you know we're exploring sort of double diamondy kind of you know ideating and then refining and all of that sort of stuff and it's just different ways of I guess getting a group of people to go towards to, to end up in the same place. And so the, the, I guess the process of, of, of disambiguating is, you know, like, I mean, that's a topic for an entire podcast in itself. Um, it's kind of trying to draw out what's in people's heads and bring evidence to suggest why one option is better than the other and to help people get there. Lucy, I think you had a really nice format for this as well, where it was something like the outcome, the action maybe, and then the cost. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that, sorry. <laughs> Should probably talk about that bit, which is just one of the, <laughs> one of the techniques for doing it. It's really just, um, I guess, doing that thing of like using a statement to outline kind of what's the outcome that we're going for, what are we going to place value on it and what are we going to um what what is the cost of that so it's like you know we we we're going into a competitive market so we need a re- really high quality product so we're going to take a little bit longer to get there you know you might do that if you're trying to enter a market that actually or disrupt a market that has a number of kind of quite mature products in it already and you're like we need to do something really innovative but we know that the standard the the quality standard that's going to be acceptable has to be really high so it's just going to take us a bit longer to get there and it's being really kind of clear about what that cost is and you can throw these around you can kind of just I, I I really like the um, relaying back to people what you hear them say of like, oh, so what I think you're saying is we're going to go after X and then you fill in that bit of, but you're o- and that means that we're okay with Y because they often, mm. you know, people tell you what they want. They don't often tell you the, the price they're willing to pay for it. And yeah. by actually stating this, they'll then go, no, 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 that's not what I meant at all. That's Or it's like, yeah, okay. And you can start to have, you're not just going, oh, I've had this instruction and we've got to go do X. I've got to figure out how to do X. But I'm also trying to do Y as well and now I'm getting railroaded. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling because I've got all of this stuff on my plate. And so it, it's just a really quick and simple way of, I guess, navigating some of those conversations to get everyone into the same place. Okay, so the the price that you have to pay is an interesting concept, and the next thing in the the acronym is eliminate. 
there's two things I really want to talk to you about here. One of them is it goes right back to what you were talking about there, which is a vote off the island exercise. But before we dig into the exercise, can you also tell us why limiting the number of options is is beneficial? Um, so there, I, I guess there are two kind of thoughts that have merged on this. Um, one of which is just like most people only have the capacity to work on a small number of things at any point in time, and you know if you look at you know wastage in process. Spending loads of time talking about things that we're not going to start for another six, nine, 12 months isn't actually particularly useful, especially if we're kind of coming in with the mindset of we're going to learn along the way. So what we think now should be quite different from what we think in six months' time. So like, let, let's, let's not get too attached to that stuff. Let's focus on like the now. What can we do this? You know, what can we do today? What can we do tomorrow? There's then, um, and so that, that's my kind of thing of like, I don't want to talk about stuff that's happening in six months' time because, like, I don't even know if I'll have a job in six months' time. That's like crazy talk. Um, no. um, <laughs> but there's, a, there's also a little bit of, I think, neuroscience that's supporting this and, and psychology around it, which I, I love this thing that so much of our psychology, so much of what we know and, and – um, have developed is based on experiments of people choosing chocolate bars. I don't know why we have that, but you know that like all the, the there's so much sort of psychology of, uh, and, and cognitive biases that are based on experiments about which chocolate bar did people buy. Anyway, the, the, um, and, more, and more specifically, college students choosing yes, chocolate yes, bars. Like, <laughs> I, I'm fairly sure there are some factors in there that they haven't actually, you know. <laughs> Uh, compensated for, but anyway, um, but the, but the I think what they were they were looking at kind of you know have taken it to the extreme of putting people in functional MRI machines uh, whilst choosing chocolate bars, and what they've sort of worked out is for a, a decision like that, you get a certain amount of electrical signal dedicated. The brain kind of goes, okay, this is a not very important decision. I'm going to give you say let's say a hundred. Um, I don't even know what the uh, electricity in one's brain is measured in, but 100 units of decision-making power. And if you've got 25 options in front of you, it's like, okay, so each of them will get at least one. And then the one that you really like might get, you know, three units of that. And, and there'll be a few that you like, the ones that you recognise you'll like. So because you recognise them, they'll all get two units and maybe there are a few that you're particularly fond of. And suddenly you've kind of run out of your decision-making units and the signal, the contrasting signal between all of those apparently isn't that strong. So if you can narrow it down and you go, well, actually, I've only got... I guess what they ended up finding was they'd asked people at some stage what their favourite was and then they tested how many of them chose to eat their favourite when they were allowed to select one. And actually the more options you presented, the fewer people selected their favourite. And kind of the, you know, the, the, the inference was you actually make worse decisions with the more options that are available to you. Um, I mean, this is all kind of theory on how it works. Um, I, I think this is really interesting because... Um one of the things that uh, I think I've certainly learned to do in managing up within a company is making sure that when there are those decisions to be made, like you're not presenting 
here are all of the 20 different things that the team have thought about for trying to move forward to this outcome or, or whatever it is or solve this problem um, and narrow it down and then take just like three or maybe five at the most to that leadership team to then get their input. Is that kind of what you're talking about yeah, here? So it's that, like- that, that's precisely it. And, and it's that thing about focusing on a few things, go deeper on them, have the higher yeah. quality conversation. Because when you're trying to talk about 25 different things, like, you know, then it's even basic stuff of like, how many times have, you know, probably earlier in your career, you've been presented with a backlog of like, here's 160 items. Can you get it in priority order? And you're sitting there going, oh, I don't know if this is 18th or 19th priority. Oh, how do I decide between these two? <laughs> and it's There's like, only two lists. There's things I care about and things I don't. Yeah, but sometimes you've got, to, you've got to go through that list to find out what you do actually care about. And it's like, actually, you know, Lucy, the technique that you have for limiting options when you've got lots of them on the board was a really interesting one. So what is vote off the island? Well, it, it, it's kind of I, – I, I don't really watch reality TV, but I believe that there are islands that people go to and get voted off or houses that you can go to, like Big Brother, and you get and you, everyone votes to, like, eliminate um, – and so what I've started to do is, you know, within Miro, you know, often in voting exercises in Miro, it's like, okay, everyone vote for the things that we want to talk about. And you get the uh, quite a scattered, broad kind of view. Whereas if you do the thing of like, actually vote for all the things that you don't think we should talk about, you know, you need to be a lot less accurate with that stuff. Um, it's sort of like you can do that a lot quicker and everyone can just go, yeah, 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 okay, that's not critical, not critical, not critical, not critical, not critical. You know, this is not going to be the thing that changes the direction of the business, so let's just take it off the board. Whereas if you're voting and saying, I want to talk about this, it's like, oh, that's, it's kind of, it's a slightly different mindset because it's like, oh, but that's interesting, but I'm kind of, you know, which ones do I want? And I'm weighing everything up that way, whereas I find that voting things off is... It, you can eliminate things a lot quicker that way. And so, yeah, we, we we do that. And it's funny how often you end up with, like, everything has at least one vote. But you do tend to narrow down to a much smaller smaller group and then have hopefully have a much richer conversation about those, a fewer number of things. It's all about richness of conversation. Would you do would you do like a pre-edit of that? Because what I always find in those group conversations when you're voting on things is you have to like go through and explain what all of the things are so that people know what they are voting off or voting on, <laughs> which can take a long time as well. Yeah, it depends a little on your audience. The group that I, I've sort of spent some time doing it with recently are actually quite close to what all the things are they're, they're, mm. and so you know it's it's a group of people who sort of understand that you know there's a bit of like obviously you don't understand the precise scope of all of those things because we don't understand the precise scope of all of those things because we haven't actually started working on any of them yet but it's general general problem areas mm. um it can be a useful alignment tool just in that you know when you don't actually get clarity that's a really strong signal as well that sort of gives you an indicator of where you are in the process. Um, but you may need 
you know, you need to do the appropriate work so that people do actually understand what these things are and, and, and are making informed decisions about them. Cool. Um, and you had a really good story as well from your days at Amazon where you wanted to make a trade-off and your peers were not keen and were kind of stopping you. Is that So that's part of, I think, this next step, which was validate. So you're, you're validating your trade-off with everyone in the business or the people who are involved? I, I, th- I think this is more about kind of going, okay, once we've got to a point where we know we've got a kind of clarity on what our options really are, you know, we're down to two or three options, you usually have a sort of probably a team recommendation at that stage. But it's often, if this has been something that's difficult to do, it's probably the first time you're doing it. But most decisions, you know, there there are patterns in business. Most decisions that you're making, you're not making for the first time. So go and find the people who have made these sorts of decisions before and and get their input. And it's kind of, it's just about sort of going, there are wise people in every business. There are people who've got these the experience of doing this stuff. Go and talk to them because they'll be better guides they may be much more comfortable making these kind of decisions than people who are trying to make those decisions for the first time because that's hard. So you said there were people, I remember seeing in the talk, there were people who uh, were at the team level who were blocking this decision and they had a really interesting acronym that I think is worth repeating. Yeah. Um, so uh, I mentioned TIA, which, you know, when I worked at Amazon, I was often told TIA, um, which stands for this is Amazon. And it's kind of like there's a culture. I don't, I don't know what it's like in any in the other big tech, but it's a sort of uh, I want to kind of call it arrogance. It is kind of arrogance, but it's sort of this this sort of thing of like, we are big and we are good and we should be able to do the right thing and we shouldn't disappoint customers. So like, you know, and, and there's a bit of like, and this is just the way it is. Um, these are the kind of non-negotiables. Or sometimes it was used as just a sort of, you know, if you couldn't quite explain it, TIA. Um, it, it just becomes <laughs> sort of shorthand to get you through that sort of thing. But, you know, a lot of a lot of people that I was working with were, were very nervous about, you know, I guess the, the context for um, everyone listening is it was sort of looking at deprecating a feature because we were doing a migration. We couldn't migrate that feature in the time that we needed to and we had other things coming down the pipeline. And none of us had really deprecated a feature before at Amazon. It's like, does Amazon doesn't really do this? You know, we don't. That's kind of seen. We, people were thinking about it as a as as a breaking of customer trust. However, when we spoke to leadership about it, they were very much like, actually, in this case, we're okay with that. Um, we do think it's the right decision to do. And it, you know, when we look at the cost of taking that feature forward it's a non-core feature yeah you know and customers aren't going to lose any data it's just not it doesn't have the usage that it needs to justify the cost and so we're just you know put the numbers down on paper and they were like yeah this is a really obvious decision it was interesting how we'd sort of built up that kind of like you looked at it and it was a really obvious decision but there was this sort of internal culture but we don't do that that's not the sort of thing that we do um Mm. 
and I, I love looking back on decisions like this, which are probably really, you know, kind of pivotal, not or not pivotal, but really big in my life because they the had a huge impact on me. I bet no one else really remembers that decision these days. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. It's really interesting as a story. I mean, I was at Amazon, but I was there before that acronym was a thing because I was there in very early days. But you look at Amazon now, they've... They have definitely deprecated things. They got yeah. rid of an entire telephone that they did. They're getting rid of uh, photo storage now and various other things. Yeah. This is something that they do. It's just not part of the legend of what they do internally. Yeah, and I think, but it's also stuff that, like, you know, Amazon's now 20-something years old. Like, you can't, <laughs> what was appropriate at one point is 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 not appropriate now. It, it makes complete sense to do that. It's just that we as a team, we were quite... You know, we were still building a product out. We were, you know, we were behind Netflix. We were kind of adding new features, but, you know, not that many of them were, you know, it was probably one in three was uh, an innovative feature and the rest were catch-up features. And so, you know, deprecation wasn't something that we'd really been been dealing with at that point in time. And that's just something you go through on sort of product maturity curve. As, as your product gets older, you're going to need to start deprecating things. You know, hopefully you're not having to deprecate too much stuff in the first six months of a product's life because hopefully you haven't made that big of commitments to things yet. You know, at that <laughs> stage we call them pivots, um, not deprecations. <laughs> Oh, we ran out of time. Come back next week and hear more about how to record and assess the trade-offs you make and how you can use trade-offs to align the team on a basic strategy. The product experience is the first and the best podcast from Mind the Product. Our hosts are me, Lily Smith. And me, Randy Silver. Lou Ron Pratt is our producer and Luke Smith is our editor. Our theme music is from Hamburg-based band POW. That's P-A-U. Thanks to Arnie Kittler, who curates both Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and who also plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. You can connect with your local product community via Product Tank, regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide. If there's not one near you, maybe you should think about starting one. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash product tank. <laughs> <laughs>